The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So for some of you, this is a happy day, because it's the last day we'll be, at least for a year or two, <coughs> working on the 16 <laughs> steps of mindfulness of breathing. Where we're basically uh, training the mind to be interested in these four insights. How to be interested? How can the mind or the heart be interested in healing how the mind is relating to the body? So that the mind or the heart, whatever it is that's feeling and knowing the body, is doing that in a way that's really beautiful and, and not kind of torturing the body. Because we can know the body in a way that's very hostile a lot of the time. Or we can know the body in a way that's really disconnected, in denial, right? But can we know, can the mind, heart know the body in a way that is harmonizing and calming? And this would be true even if our body is really sick or the body's really old and dying. So this would be a possibility regardless of the particular physical situation of the body. Right? The body might have a lot of pain, a toothache, for example. But the mind has the capacity to be aware, to be intimate, honestly present with the body in a way that's not making it worse. Right? Oh, toothache, throbbing, whatever, aching, it's like this. Yeah, painful. But I, why would, <clears throat> like in the sort of spirit of honesty and awareness, why would the mind, why would any natural process get tight if it had no function? This is the great thing about nature. Things that have no function tend to get teased out, right? Because they have no function. Getting upset about bodily pain has no function. Bodily pain is just like information, basically saying, hey, if there's anything anyone can do about this, please do it. But if there isn't anything you can do about it, okay, there's, right now there's nothing you can do about it. But getting tight because there's pain doesn't do anything but get in the way of a more nimble responsivity when there is something that can be done. Right? Like if our only move given that we have a body, is every time there's some pain, it's to get a little tighter. And more pain, we get tight, right? Well, you know how we end up. <laughs> tight. <laughs> Which is the way we feel a lot of the time, <clears throat> you know? And then, given that we've been practicing being tight with the body because we can't control or prevent bodily pain, then when we do take up a practice like you know, basically any awareness practice, we realize how much cumulative tension there is in the body. And it's like, oh, I don't want to be aware, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to go back to TV or drinking or any number of the ways that we stay disconnected, stay busy, in denial. It's not easy to turn the corner, especially 
when we've been practicing different ways of being tight for a long time. Because cumulatively, it, initially it really hurts. I mean, I've been a very sincere, dedicated practitioner now for 37 years or so. And I'm just, and I don't, this is not awakening that I'm talking about now. I'm just talking about healing how the mind relates to the body so that the patterns of freezing up or getting unlearned. And I'm just like, I can trace. I remember early on when I was in college, so 19, 20 maybe. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> but anyway, what? Oh, <laughs> I knew there was a reason why people laughed. <laughs> no, I was of the age, 19 or 20. <laughs> and I remember just like this tension right behind my heart, just like that tight knot, right? A lot of us have it in different places in our spine. And, you know, just slowly learning how not to be aware of it and to tighten up around it, but to be aware of it and to know it's like this, not to at least make it worse by being afraid of it or wanting to be in denial of it. And then over, now it's been many decades or several decades, right? It's just sort of morphed into different kind, you know, as one old pattern got unlearned, then it just revealed a more subtle pattern of holding and a more subtle pattern, right? And and in this simple way, even though our body's getting older, more achy, in ways that arise because of the aging process, these ancient, maybe even ancestral patterns of holding in our body, they can unwind. And it's one of the very sweet, sweet um, side effects of the practice. It's not really the heart of the practice, but it's a really beautiful side effect is that the mind and body learn how to be dear, dear friends not opposed, not at war, not in denial, right? And really, it's the mind we're talking about because the body, in a way, is the innocent sort of expression of nature that the mind, for whatever existential, unseen reasons, the mind is tethered to this sort of mini-world here called the body. Like it or not, for this lifespan... This mind, whatever that is, is tethered to this body, the kind of expression of physicality. And the mind has a lot of bad habits about, you know, not having a choice, not being in control, right? And so it creates, it uh, falls into bad habits, you know? It's like when a child, a four-year-old, breaks its toy, like, you know, I don't like this anymore. You won't let me do this. You know, it's sort of we sometimes become self-destructive in a way that doesn't make us happy, but somehow makes sense in the moment, you know, where we bang our head against the wall. I don't know if some of you know Ram Das, one of the early folks bringing these teachings from the East here to the West. Um, he was a Harvard psychology professor doing experiments with LSD back in the early and mid-60s, and then went to India, found his teacher, changed his name, and wrote some influential books, but one of the people I teach with, um, Kamala Masters, was on one of the early retreats at IMS, Instant Meditation Society, Massachusetts, and Ram Das 
was on the retreat, and they were doing walking, some of you know, in the lower walking hall, the basement room right under the meditation hall. And he'd got to the end of the walking lane. You know, you're just sort of trying to be present, walking from here to there, and then you stop and turn around, walk from there to the other, you know, back and forth. And he got to the end of his walking lane, and so this is just a cement basement wall, and he just started to... <laughs> like, and things like that seem like a good idea sometimes. You know, it's like, I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to bang my head against this concrete wall. You know, I mean, we do, sometimes it's not as obvious, but it's like, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to watch one more half an hour of TV, right? Even though our head is already hurting from having been staring at the screen, somehow it seems like a good idea to do it for another half an hour or eat more food or any number of ways we're basically doing the equivalent of banging our head against the wall. So that's the mind not being in harmony with embodiment, right? And so it has a destructive relationship just like we do with our partners and our communities and the world at large, right? All kinds of ways we have an unhealthy relationship with reality. And so we're talking about the more gross, not negatively, but the more dense or gross expression of reality as body, as embodiment, and learning to heal that. And then the more subtle, which is the activity of mind, we do the same thing. We notice, like in the beginning of healing the body, we took something relatively neutral, the feeling of breathing in and the physical feeling of breathing out, right? Now we're taking joy and ease. We're keeping those relatively pleasant in in an inner sense. It's really the pleasure of an uncomplicated mind that we've developed because we healed the mind's relationship with the body. So that mind is already secluded or protected from a lot of neurotic activity it would otherwise be involved with. Because we did that little training. We stayed with the breath. We cultivated more inclusive awareness of the whole body. And we noticed that the mind can be with the body in a harmonious way as we breathe in and out and a lot of calm. So this mind, because we're noticing the calm of the mind and body getting along, that mind is secluded or withdrawn or not involved in a lot of neurotic activity. So in Buddhism, we call that a secluded mind because it's in a more simple state. It's not doing a lot of neurotic stuff. And initially, it won't be strong, but initially there will be a little joy. Not that joy is a thing. Joy is really the absence of the mind being enmeshed in neurotic activities, worrying about things it doesn't need to worry about, planning things that don't need to be planned, comparing things that don't need to be compared, analyzing things that don't need to be analyzed. It's not doing that. And in the not doing that, there's a very simple natural lightness, buoyancy, because the mind isn't oppressed by doing things it doesn't need to be doing. The thinking mind, let's just call it for lack of a better word or phrase. So the thinking mind isn't doing what it normally is doing And in the not doing of that, we train the mind to notice the buoyancy of that, of that not doing, the lightness of the not doing the neurotic neurotic stuff. 
And the more we keep the joy, now the joy is a relatively subtle thing to keep in mind, that lightness. So initially, doubt will arise like, oh, there's no lightness here. How can I do step five? There's no lightness. So it's a confidence move. Like, I note, I'll notice lightness when I intend to notice it. I won't notice it first. I have to intend to notice it. I have to want to notice it as I'm breathing in and breathing out. I have to be actually curious and interested. Because if we're not curious and interested, we're not going to notice it. Right? And it's like a shifting of gears where we're, the mind, the knowing mind, is usually knowing more gross things, but now we're asking it to notice more subtle things, like the relative lightness, the relative buoyancy or joy of the mind not so involved in neurotic activity. So it's a relative thing. It's relatively unoppressed, the mind, the heart. So we notice that. And the more we notice it, then it's more and more not doing that neurotic stuff. So the joy will naturally get more obvious. That's how you know you're doing the training correctly, is joy becomes more clear. That lightness, that buoyancy becomes more clear. And it can even become quite rapturous at times, where there's like lots of joy, waves of energy, joyful energy, moving in the body-mind. Like... Like that kind of hair rising in the back of the neck, you know, that's a wave of rapture that's relatively recognizable. We've all had that. Oh, that's interesting, right? Spaghetti and meatballs, or whatever you like, you know, for lunch. You know I mean? right? So even like the delight of getting what we want, we get a little wave of that. Because in that moment, when the mind is anticipating something it likes, before the tension of greed, when's it going to happen? Before that, there's just the, the beauty of the mind is collected. Now, here, in the example I'm giving, it's greed that's collecting the energy of the mind, right? But still, that mind is secluded from all the other neurotic stuff it would be doing, even though it's involved in a neurotic thing, spaghetti and meatballs, right? But it's not doing anything else. And so there's some rapture, even in something as simple as that. Or just playing tennis or whatever you like to do that can sort of collect the energy of the mind. Because that there's a little of that seclusion, the mind not wrapped up in its ordinary neurotic business. The, and just moving in that direction. And so we train the mind to notice joy and then to notice something even more subtle which is the joy triggers a deeper relaxation of the heart. Because there's some joy, some pleasant joy, I don't need to be tight about wanting joy. So that part of the heart that really wants something pleasant, it can relax because it's pleasant. And that relaxation of the heart, the heart that has what it wants, we call ease, or sukha is the Pali word, contentment. So we keep that in mind. That's a more subtle inner happiness. Keep it in mind. Lots of other things are happening. That's just all happening in the background. Don't try to stop other stuff from happening. Make the effort to keep that inner quality of ease, 
sukha in mind. Keep it in mind as you're breathing out. Keep it in mind. Get good, well-trained at keeping ease in mind. Let everything else just do what it's doing, but in the background. And it, in what's in the background will come into the foreground, a thought about this, this or that. I'm not doing it right, doubt. But just don't deal with the distraction. Just be interested in the training. Oh, no, ease as I'm breathing in. Ease as I'm breathing out. You can always go back to the earlier steps as needed, right? But don't take the bait, which is like to believe I'm the one who can't do this, for example, or not today. I did it one day, but not today. My mind's not in a good place. Because what helps the mind to get in the right place, to get its groove back, is to keep doing the right thing, right? And we're basically stepping down from grosser things to keep in mind to more subtle things to keep in mind. So if you're at a place trying to practice and you really the mind really can't do it, just step back to a more gross object that the mind can keep in mind. All the way back to, well, can I, for just the duration of breathing in, can I keep the physicality of breathing in in mind? Just for the duration of breathing out, can I keep that exclusive object awareness in mind? That's step one and two. And just to notice how the breathing rhythm settles down because of this exclusive attention to the physicality of breathing in and breathing out. And um, I didn't bring them here today, but there are copies of this 16 steps online. Um, I'll mention it at the very end because you might forget it as we continue on. So we're healing the body-mind. We're healing how the mind relates to mental activity because with the ease, there's dispassion. With this dispassionate, spacious looking, knowing of mental activity, it quiets down. That sets up a more profound insight where we're, the mind, the knowing mind now, is able to intuit the knowing mind can't directly grasp or know the object of the knowing mind because that would be an object being known. But it can be like we know there's knowing because now in this moment objects are being known. But can we know the knowing directly? Well, we can intuit, right? And that's kind of a special mental muscle because it's so subtle to be intuiting, just like I can't really know the space of the room, but I know there's space because I see that light and wall and cushion and person and right. So I intuit the space. And so I can train my mind to keep the space of the mind, the space of the knowing mind, the space of the present moment in mind. It's not easy because it's subtle. Doubt will arise. Don't take the bait. Just do your best to keep it in mind. And remember, we, the mind depends on the concept all the way through this. The concept, like the in-breath, is a concept. But it points to the physicality of breathing in, whether you feel that as a rising in your abdominal wall or a touching at your nostrils. doesn't really matter. But it points to the physicality, the concept. So all the way, joy is a concept, but it can point to an actual lightness. 
ease is a concept, but it's a useful concept. So now we have the concept, space of the mind, or the mind, the heart, space of the present moment. And it points to something, the concept. So we use the concept to keep pointing awareness to what that concept points to. And we don't confuse, like we're not meditating on the phrase, knowing the mind, even though you might use a phrase like that, you know, as you breathe in, knowing the mind, or knowing the space of the mind, intuiting the mind, intuiting the space of the present moment as you breathe in, as you breathe out. You may use a concept, but the concept is there to point to an experience. And if when we look at open to the heart and mind, the space, it has the quality, like a spiritual quality of beauty and release. Because it's like a, you know, in spiritual circles, there's that word transcendence. Because almost always the knowing mind, which we normally refer to as me, right? the knowing mind is entangled with what's being known because of its likes and dislikes, which are habits. I like this image. I like this person. I like this sense. I don't like, right? So the mind, the knowing mind is knowing these objects and reacting based on its habits of liking and disliking. And that's the entanglement, the enmeshment with the world. But as we're doing this third set of instructions, knowing the mind, appreciating the mind, gladdening the mind, stilling, concentrating the mind, releasing the mind, liberating the mind. We're learning something about the nature of the mind and the inherent, um, let's say, availability of freedom. That the mind doesn't have to be entangled in the world of its likes and dislikes. So this is an initial taste of freedom that's coming not because the mind actually knows how to be in the world of its likes and dislikes. That's a deeper wisdom. But the mind has learned to turn away from the world of its, dis- its likes and dislikes. Right? That's what we like reading a novel. There may be lots of likes and dislikes in terms of the characters in the novel, but at least they're not my likes and dislikes. So we have a little bit of space, somebody else's drama instead of our own, right? Or even listening to someone else, you know, talk about what's going At least we feel like we've got a little space from our own dramas. So this is a much more profound taste. It's a real taste of liberation, but it doesn't come because we know how to be in the world of likes and dislikes without getting entangled. It's because we've learned how to turn away. But that doesn't mean it isn't profound. It's really profound. So we're noticing the space of the mind. We're appreciating that spiritual intuition that there's some real freedom close at hand here. I don't understand it, but I sense it. I intuit it. And so we really keep the space of the mind, not any mental activity, not any sensations. They're there far now, hopefully, in the background because we're not repressing the body and we're not repressing mental activity. We're just not paying attention to it. We're paying attention intuitively 
to the space of the mind, the space of knowing. And that space, like whatever the knowing mind knows, doesn't stain the knowing mind. Just like I could have something really disgusting in front of a beautiful mirror, but the disgusting, like dog poop. I don't know if that's disgusting enough, but maybe. But anyway, (laughs) I don't like dog poop. But it doesn't affect the mirror, right? Or I could put something really beautiful and sublime in front of the mirror, but it doesn't affect the mirror. So this is a simile for the knowing mind. When we keep the mind in mind, the space of the mind in mind, we're intuiting something that is unstainable. And it's really important to intuit that because it gives the heart the mind, a flavor of the freedom that's possible. The mind has to, it needs confidence, like to actually be in the world, the messy world, it needs confidence that there's a possibility of being in the world without being burdened, being a mom without being burdened, having a body that, you know, is vulnerable to illness and death without being burdened by just that reality being in a world with terrible injustice without freezing up because of the true suffering that's here in our world. So we develop this intuition that comes by understanding the nature of the mind. And here, the nature of the mind isn't personal. This is the nature of this, which is not, it's a universal insight. So when you have this insight, it's the same as somebody else having this insight. So I'm not having insight into my kind of personal psychology, the way I was raised, or the sort of cultural conditioning that I've received. It's at a deeper level of the mind. That that when the mind turns back on itself, there's a taste of freedom. And it's really a moment of the ending of duality or the ending of selfing. But that tendency will reassert itself. That's okay, because it's going to reassert itself. But the taste of that freedom leaves an impression in the mind. Now, this is an insight we want to have many, 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 many times. And probably many of you in the room have had this insight whether you clearly remembered, because the mind doesn't know what to do with that insight, right? So we'll say, oh, you know, maybe that kind of unity, that experience of dropping self was associated with walking in the woods or making love or whatever it might have been. And so you might associate it with that grosser activity. But it was actually the mind turning back on itself and dropping any sense, because separation is a construction, a subtle mental construction. Any kind of tension is something the mind creates. So at this moment, the mind stops doing that, and it experiences the mind free of the tension of duality, of, of separation. And then then the spiritual life gets a little clearer because of that, like every time the mind touches some freedom, 
then we have a lot more clarity now when we're suffering, like that it's optional. So we might be enmeshed with our partner, you know, or struggling with our body or whatever it might be, but there's a little thread of wisdom that now has more clarity about the suffering because it tasted the mind that didn't have suffering, that didn't have tension. So now it has a clearer perspective on tension. And it really is motivating. And motivating enough, and I mentioned this last four instructions, we can do all day long. And this really gets motivated by having that insight that I just talked about. And the way to set up these last four instructions the Buddha gives us is, what, when I pay attention to it, develops the heart, the mind, that doesn't grasp, that doesn't hold, so that I can be a person enmeshed in the messiness of life, in relationship, with a job, caring about suffering in the world, without the grasping, the grasping of fear, the grasping of it has to be this way, but just participating fully in our lives without any friction or without any psychic weight. What do I need to pay attention to that allows me to fully engage without any psychic weight? So we're becoming more and more of who we are, not some ephemeral spiritual being that doesn't know how to touch ground, right? But like really embodying, like just to be blunt, really embodying sexuality, really knowing how to embody power, how to show up with power that we have because of our particular location, racially, class-wise, money-wise, you know. We have this, you know, like it or not, fair or not, each of us is located in life. We are tethered to this sort of, lack of a better word, phrase, physical reality, right? And can we own it fully, live it fully, but without the squeeze in our heart? So what the Buddha's answer to this is, I mean, the short answer is, yeah, be intimate with reality and letting go will happen. That's the short answer. So with the taste of freedom having been developed, so now we're suspicious about suffering. I mean, we're not, we understand that the world is a mess and needs help, right? Needs our engagement. So it's not like we're going to give up. Actually, we now know how to show up. But we have to cultivate the heart that knows how to let go, right? Let go of fear. Just, I mean, anything neurotic, but fear is a good one word for being neurotic. And the Buddha's answer from studying his own mind is, when you really pay attention to the way it is, letting go happens. So the, the last four instructions is, breathing in, breathing out, being aware of the changing ephemeral nature, impermanent nature, of whatever the mind is knowing. It doesn't matter what we're knowing. That's why we can do it all day long. So you're living your life, you're doing your thing, but you're aware that the moment is changing. Like 
your partner might have triggered some anger or some love, some gratitude. But we're aware of that gratitude, but in order to notice that gratitude comes and goes, that hatred comes and goes, that pain comes and goes, that delight comes and goes. So whatever is happening, we're not taking it on the surface. We're going right to the essence, which is it's a changing. It's something that comes and goes naturally as a natural process. Now, we don't need to know why that would be so impactful. We just need to check out what happens when we keep the impermanent, insubstantial, uncertain, unreliable nature of experience, mental, physical, doesn't matter, when we keep it in mind. What happens? Well, the Buddha says, if you do that, this passion will arise. You'll realize that the world is the world, but I can't own it. I can't keep it. Right? And this is the profound turning from my engagement with the world as a self-centered project, what can I get, right? to there's no way to get anything from my life. So, but I still have this body. I still have this location. I still have life energy. All that's left is to give our life away. That's the only thing that's left. Because we, that insight of seeing the changing nature leads to this profound dispassion. There's nothing here for me. I can't take anything with me. I can't own it. It never refers back to me, whatever I do. So when we <clears throat> take care of our families, we take care of our body, we shovel the snow, we try to do something about criminal justice systems or inequities of economics or whatever we might do locally or globally, it's a joy to give our life away. We do it because the doing of it feels good to do it, not because it refers back or somebody's going to get even like a karmic ticket to heaven. Right? Even that idea is selfing. Right? So as we develop, now I'm not saying that's a bad idea, that's a relatively good idea, like, to train our children, like when you hit other folks in school, they're not going to invite you to play, right? So that sort of, it does refer back, right? Because that's where our mind is a lot of the time. But now we're talking at a more subtle level where the mind has gotten a taste, this intuitive taste of freedom. And now we're really training the mind to see that because things are the way that they are, insubstantial, ephemeral, uncertain, unreliable, changing, nothing is ever a thing. It never refers back. There is never going to be anything in the world for me. That gross idea is just too gross, too simplistic to be trustworthy anymore. So the heart starts to relate with dispassion, and then the next word that's used, cessation, which just means the heart gives up 
trying to get anything from experience. And we have this experience more and more, and that's what develops the letting go, which is that realizing the mind or the heart free of any kind of self-centered grasping. That there's nothing, the heart, now we're doing it in the world. So we're seeing it in our relationships. Start simple, washing dishes, brushing teeth, then work up to being with your child, your partner, your colleague at work or whatever. But how to be fully, completely in a moment with no grasping, no... So it's like a, it's, these ordinary moments become a taste of freedom. It has that intuitive taste of freedom. No self, no body dependent in any way. So it's all generosity, right? And it doesn't neglect this body or even neglect the kind of ordinary um, personality tendencies that are embedded in this mind, this heart. I'll take care of that just like I'll take care of my child, my partner, my friend, right? So we're not, we don't have an idea that, oh, I don't need to take care of myself because it's empty. Everyone's empty. The taking care of everything happens because that is what's left. That's sort of the sort of culmination of abandoning self-centeredness is a full participation. And it's not that we think neurotically that the world needs us to save it. It's the joy of our heart, body, mind, or this, to give ourselves fully. Any holding back would be suffering. Like, oh, I can't really show up for that person because i got to save something for me, or whatever we might think. It's always a yes. So even if we don't, you know, we see someone at the corner, at the freeway, you know, asking for some money, and we don't give all of our money, right? But that doesn't have to be a stinginess of the heart. It can be a yes to my retirement or a yes to my children or a yes to the other things I care about, right? So it can be a yes to them and a yes. Why can't it all be yes? Even the no's can be yeses, right? What I mean by yes is it's in a, it really has the flavor of generosity instead of the flavor of stinginess or self-centeredness. And that's really the last four steps. And we ran out of time again. <laughs> but I promise not to talk about this next week. <laughs> but you might bring it up in the discussion time if you like. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.